what happens in autoimmune disease is the immune system loses the ability to differentiate our cells from a foreign invader. And they start treating some protein in our body the same way it would treat a virus. The fail safes that are supposed to detect that and shut it down, they fail. We know that autoimmune disease is just complex. You can't ever point to one specific cause. Of course. So with the the link to nutrients is that the immune system is like it's a nutrient hog. And the most common nutrient shortfalls from our diet, so nutrients we're not getting enough of, are all nutrients that are important for those fail safes to work and for regulation of the immune system in general. So the immune system is able to turn itself on and it's not as easy for the immune system to turn itself back off. So if you have that accident of an autoantibody formed, you have the collection of factors that mean your fail safes fail. And then you have diet factors, lifestyle factors that are making it really hard for the immune system to turn itself off. That's like the perfect storm of events that are leading to autoimmune disease. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Live Damn Well podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Sarah Ballantyne all about autoimmune disease and nutrient density. In this episode, we'll be discussing what is autoimmune disease, the role of the gut microbiome in autoimmune disease, what key factors underlie all healthy diets, Dr. Ballantyne's novel food ranking system, the health benefits of phytonutrients and what they even are, and Dr. Ballantyne's thoughts on the carnivore diet, anti-nutrients, and how this may affect autoimmunity. But before we begin, I'd like to shout out our show's sponsors for today. If you have enjoyed previous episodes, please consider buying me a nice warm cup of coffee with the link in the description. Also, if you haven't checked out Hugh Kitchen Dark Chocolates, I think you're really missing out. They offer delicious dark chocolates made with all organic ingredients, unrefined coconut sugar, and they have a bunch of different dark chocolate varieties from gingerbread to cashew butter and raspberry. They have grass-fed milk chocolate and even paleo grain-free crackers. It's Valentine's Day coming up soon, and you can get 15% off Hue Kitchen products using the link in the description and entering code J-O-R-G-E. All will be in the description as well. You've also heard me talk about Thrive Market before. They're a fully online grocery store on a mission to make healthy living as accessible and affordable for everyone. You can save between 25 and 50% of the price that you'd find in a physical health food store near you just by shopping through Thrive Market. And the nice thing is they deliver right to your door. The membership is very affordable. It's just about the price of a cup of coffee per month. And you can buy pretty much anything from a curated list of non-toxic cosmetics and cleaning products, high-quality supplements, and sustainable frozen wild-caught fish and grass-fed beef. And again, all of this is shipped straight to your door when you order, usually within the same week. And another reason why I love this company is because for every paid membership, Thrive actually sponsors a membership for a low-income family, and they also are very environmentally conscious and working to become carbon neutral. Um, so if you want to make healthy eating way more affordable, but also as convenient as possible and delicious, they offer a ton of quote unquote processed foods, but these processed foods have great ingredients in them, all organic and like very minimally processed. When I say processed, it's like they have a cereal. I don't know if they still have it. I hope they do, but it's called coconut flakes and they it's basically just ground up coconut meat and water and baked in the oven with some sea salt and it's like this sweet delicious cereal so 
check it out. My mouth is watering from just describing that. And because you're a listener of this episode, you can get 30% off your first order and a free gift. The link will be in the description for that. And now let's get into our discussion with Dr. Sarah Ballantyne. All right, today I have with me Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, an award-winning public speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and world-renowned health expert. She's the founder of website thepaleomom.com, where she combined her background in medical research with her experience using diet and lifestyle to mitigate a dozen diagnosed health conditions. She's also the founder of Nutrivore, a dietary concept using nutrient density and sufficiency as its basic principles, looking to make a huge impact on the world of diet dogma. Dr. Ballantyne, it's an honor to have you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start probably somewhere different than you usually do in other interviews. Um, and that's with your Ancestry, Ancestry Foundation talk uh, several years ago mm-hmm. to sort of wrap this concept of autoimmunity and immune dysregulation with your um, new founding of Nutrivore. So let's start there. With immune, with autoimmune disease, uh, what I understand from it is that it is a dysregulation of the immune system. First of all, what does this mean and why is the immune system dysregulated in the first place? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So um, our immune system's primary job is to protect us from foreign invaders. That foreign invader could be a virus or a bacteria or a parasite, or it could be something like dirt in a cut, right? And so our immune system's job is to detect that foreign invader and then isolate it if in the case of dirt in a, in a wound and or kill it. Um, we have a variety of different uh, cells and chemicals that those cells produce that do different parts of that job. And so the immune system is really complex. There are lots of different players in the immune system and you can divide the immune system in a couple of different ways. So you could divide it into the specific and non-specific immune system, often called the uh, adaptive and innate immune system. So your innate immune system is your non-specific. They're the first responders. They're the first ones to get there, but they would do the job all by themselves of you know, getting rid of a, a sliver or dirt in a wound. Your adaptive immune system is what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, immunity, viruses, uh, vaccines. Um, That is the part that's specific. It recognizes that exact foreign invader and has exact tools Mm -hmm. to eliminate that foreign invader and cells that have been infected. What happens in autoimmune disease is the immune system loses the ability to differentiate our cells from a foreign invader. And they start treating some protein in our body the same way it would treat a virus. So it's specific. It is that specific part of the immune system that would remember one specific virus. Instead, it is recognizing usually one specific protein, sometimes a handful of proteins in our own body. So then whatever tissue or organ system that makes that protein, that uses that protein as part of its job, when the immune system is attacking that protein, it's attacking now those cells, those tissues, that organ system. And when enough damage builds up that you have symptoms, you have uh, something to diagnose. So most autoimmune diseases are diagnosed based on symptoms rather than lab tests, although there are lab tests for some autoimmune diseases. So it's that damage to a system caused by our own immune systems. So what, what causes that like loss of the immune system's ability to tell us apart uh, from some kind of foreign invader. It's an accident. It's actually an accident that happens in all of us most of the time. So if you just uh, like take blood tests of like random people, 20 to 30% of people will have what are called autoantibodies. So these are antibodies that our B cells and immune cell produces that will actually bind to our own tissues. So what we have as also as part of the immune system is fail-safes, a variety of fail-safes that are supposed to detect when this normal accident that just happens by chance happens. And our thymus gland is supposed to be able to shut down those cells from attacking ourselves. And we have certain types of cells who are supposed to detect those types of regulatory cells, supposed to detect those type of uh, shenanigans and shut it down. So what happens in autoimmune disease, it's not really that the accident of an autoantibody being, for- being formed is like really unusual. It's that the fail safes that are supposed to detect that and shut it down, they fail. Mm. 
And that happens through genetic susceptibility. That's about a one third of our risk factor of this happening. So just like some aspects of the immune system that just aren't quite up to snuff and just get confused more easily and just can't shut itself down as easily. And then environment, which is uh, toxins, infections, it's our diet, it's our lifestyle, it's everything else pulled together is the other two thirds of our risk. And we know that autoimmune disease is just complex. You can't ever point to one specific cause. Of course. So with the, the link to nutrients is that the immune system is like, it's a nutrient hog. It uses nutrient resources like pretty much more than any other system in the human body. And the most common nutrient shortfalls from our diet, so nutrients we're not getting enough of, are all nutrients that are important for those fail-safes to work and for regulation of the immune system in general. So what happens when we're deficient in, these are nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, is the immune system is able to turn itself on and it's not as easy for the immune system to turn itself back off. So you end up with an overactive immune system driven in large part, I mean, stress and not enough sleep and gut microbiome. There's lots of other factors, but these nutrient deficiencies exacerbate, exacerbate those. And so the immune system can't shut itself off. So if you have that accident of an autoantibody formed, you have the collection of factors that mean your fail-safes fail. And then you have diet factors, lifestyle factors that are making it really hard for the immune system to turn itself off. That's like the perfect storm of events that are leading to autoimmune disease. But that's also why diet and lifestyle becomes an intervention point. Not that I would ever say that diet and lifestyle can cure autoimmune disease, but it certainly can help to just uh, you know give the, the immune system the nutrient resources it needs to start regulating itself. And it can kind of like calm that, um, that fire of immune system overactivity can just help like dampen that fire so that you are not, your immune system's not as aggressively attacking your tissues. Wow. I think that might be one of the most concise and best explanations I've heard on autoimmunity. <laughs> um, wow. So, okay. So if I'm understanding that correctly, then you have you said about a third of your susceptibility is genetic. So yes. let's say I have a genetic susceptibility and then I'm not taking care of my diet. I'm not really exercising. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not, I'm pretty stressed out. Then that is when these fail safes that are supposed to keep your immune system in check from attacking itself, they kind of shut down, they're dysfunctional. And then that can lead to autoimmune disease. Yes. Although I would say it's, it, there's a one level of complication so that um, your your genetics are also contributing to the fail-safes. So yep. those fail-safes failing is part diet, lifestyle, part social determinants of health, right? Things we don't have any control over, right. um, as well as the genetics. So it's the, it's really the interaction between all of those factors that are leading to the fail-safes failing. So th there is, I, I would hate to simplify it to the point where it feels like it's our fault for not making better diet and lifestyle choices, of right? Course, yeah. Because it is definitely more complex than that. So diet and lifestyle is part of it, but genetics are definitely part of it. And things that we have no control over, right? Our exposure to pollutants, um, you know, uh, those types of things are all interacting together. And even the genetic part of autoimmune disease is not as simple as one gene or a handful of genes. There's literally hundreds of genes that have been identified as risk genes for autoimmune disease. So the more of those you have and combined with diet and lifestyle, again, the higher your risk, but at no point is poor diet, poor lifestyle or genetic susceptibility or some kind of toxic exposure ever going to guarantee autoimmune disease. It's there's, yeah. uh, unfortunately, there's a, a large part of this that is just bad luck as well. So that being said, what is the degree to which in general, if there's any research that's been done on this area, what is the degree to which your lifestyle factors could help you? Let's say if you've already been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, how much can lifestyle interventions help to mitigate some of that? And if you have not yet developed an autoimmune disease, what is the degree to which lifestyle interventions can decrease your risk of developing it? Yeah, so I think it's hard to quantify in a generalizable way. Mm -hmm. um, we have done some 
um, sort of proof of concept clinical trials on the autoimmune protocol, which is a diet lifestyle intervention. So it combines a focus on nutrients, giving our immune systems those nutrient resources, um, an elimination and challenge protocol. So identifying our own food triggers of autoimmune disease and then lifestyle. So getting enough sleep, managing stress, uh, being active, but avoiding overtraining. So it, it kind of encompasses all of, it would be like, um, best practices for diet and lifestyle is kind of how I would describe the autoimmune protocol with a large amount of self-discovery. Sure. Um, so those, uh, we've done, um, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it showed a 73% remission in six weeks. Uh, we've done Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which showed some improvement in inflammation and quality of life symptoms, but certainly we could still see um, markers of disease activity um, in all of the patients. So there was no remission. So that goes everywhere from like 73% effective in six weeks to there's some improvement in symptoms, but we still have disease activity mm -hmm. um, in 100% of patients in six weeks. So it's probably disease specific, exactly you know how you, how effective diet and lifestyle is. Certainly, there would be an amount of time that would probably vary from person to person. I don't work with patients, but I talk with a lot of people who have used diet and lifestyle as either complementary approaches. So they're still doing all of the medications and other treatments their doctors recommend or as a primary approach, but under the supervision of their doctor, I would never recommend firing your doctor and just thinking that diet and lifestyle are going to be the magic. You always want to do this like with your doctor's, you know, uh, blessing and and monitoring, right? Because uh, they have amazing expertise and tools to help. We we want to use the best of all of our tools. So I've seen everywhere from uh, the teenager with uh, psoriatic arthritis being able to get out of a wheelchair in two days, which is not the normal experience, but quite an inspirational story to the person who's been plugging away and actually really, you know, discovers that their best health is a combination of diet and lifestyle and supplements or medications from their doctor. And they kind of have to put all of those pieces together over months or even years. And I've, I've seen that entire spectrum. Um, so it's hard to say, okay, do these things and you can expect this result in this amount of time autoimmune disease is so complex. I think it would be naive to expect the solution to be simple. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, going back to your ancestry foundation talk, you had mentioned that there are three main pillars, um, which do affect autoimmunity, which are, uh, and of course, what we talked about with nutrients and with, you know, stress and all that stuff feeds into all of these, but they are roughly gut health, hormone regulation and nutrient density. Is that still accurate or what's sort of evolved since then? Yeah. So I would say um, if we're looking at what we need to, like what are the biological systems that feed into the immune system? Like we've already talked about the immune system requiring a large collection of nutrients in order to function properly. Our hormones are impacting how our immune system is working. And that's not just like sex hormones, like estrogen and testosterone, but they do. It's thyroid hormones, it's stress hormones, like cortisol, it's neurotransmitter hormones, like serotonin, dopamine, melatonin. And they all are influencing very intricate details of immune function. And so a too high level of any of those hormones or a too low level of any of those hormones can then impact it's not just impacting how our immune system is functioning. It's also impacting how our immune system is responding to our nutritional interventions. And so lifestyle, uh, the lifestyle aspects of the autoimmune protocol are really about hormone regulation. And then gut health is that last piece. So actually our gut microbiomes impact every aspect of our health, uh, every disease in which we've looked for a connection, we have found one. And our gut microbiome composition and metabolism is impacted by our diet, but also our lifestyle and also our hormones. So they're almost like, I mean, it'd be a Venn diagram with uh, three overlapping circles, right? Like it's, they're so intertwined that you can't separate one as an inflection point or one necessarily as an intervention point. And that's why 
diet and lifestyle really go hand in hand when we're looking to use lifestyle as a lifestyle, the bigger word that incorpor incorporates food choices. And we're looking to use that as a, as a way to, um, again, sort of like give the immune system this opportunity to, to kind of regulate itself and looking at it as a symptom management tool. It's why we can't ignore sleep and we can't ignore stress management. We can't ignore activity because those are influencing the impact or those are influencing the composition of the gut microbiome as well as hormone regulation, which are impacting how the immune system is going to respond to nutrition. Now, in terms of uh, gut health and hormone regulation, before we dive into nutrient density, um, I know there are a lot of different things that, as you said, they interact with our gut and hormones interact with our gut and our gut also can probably impact our, our hormones as well. But mm -hmm. are yeah. there any specific interventions that you have uh, researched or you have, you know, used yourself um, that are helpful in specifically targeting uh, the gut, like dysbiosis or leaky gut or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the the current um, experts right now would have a really hard time saying there's any diet cure for gut dysbiosis. And that if you're dealing with gut dysbiosis, you would want to look at diet and lifestyle as well as do something like a probiotic treatment. You might want to do some type of selective non-absorbable antibiotics in order to kill off any particular pathogens. Like you would normally take a fairly multimodal approach to fixing gut dysbiosis. Um, that being said, there's not, uh, there's not like a popular diet out there that has a really good scientific foundation for improving gut microbiome composition. So if you look at the literature and you kind of take all those pieces and put them together, you would see, um, a really nutrient dense diet because our gut bacteria have essential nutrients as well. You would see a very vegetable forward diet, lots of vegetables. You would see a moderate carbohydrate diet. So not low carb. Our gut bacteria really don't like it if we drop our carbohydrate intake too low. So you would see starchy carbs being embraced like root vegetables, fruit being embraced. Seafood is the best protein for the gut microbiome and the best fats are long chain omega fats. And then you would see like olive oil is really, really good for the gut microbiome and like phytonutrient rich foods. So that's like vegetables, fruit, but also things like tea. And so right now, when you look at like, what are the popular gut focused diets? They're usually elimination diets. They're typically not designed for long-term use, but they're being used for long-term use. And like, for example, scientific studies show that low FODMAP diets for gut symptoms actually worsen gut dysbiosis over time. So if I was going to create a diet that was purely designed to fix gut problems. It would also include probiotic foods like sauerkraut, like kombucha. And it would look a lot like the AIP plus, um, you know, making sure to, to hit all of those important nutrients and probably include legumes. Like it would be like an AIP plus lentils type, type diet would be what I would craft. And we don't have any studies to be able to like, test that diet. We take all the pieces that we know from all of the scientific studies that evaluate one specific food or one specific food group and how that impacts gut health, put all those together. Could you fix someone's gut dysbiosis without doing the other medications, the treatments, the high dose probiotics? I think uh, my hypothesis would be yes. My hypothesis would be that yes, you, you could um, in that situation treat with just diet but I don't have a clinical trial that puts all of those pieces together to be able to point to. So until it's tested, it is only a hypothesis. Right. Of course. Yeah. And again, like you mentioned, it's so individual, like, you know, somebody may have a totally different looking gut uh, microbiome than somebody else. And so they may need a yeah. totally different protocol and you know, their sensitivities and allergies might be different than another. Yeah. There's actually some interesting research that would indicate that each one of us has a unique optimal gut microbiome, probably as unique to us as our genetic code or as our fingerprints. There's certain species that we know like across all humans are really important. Um, and that's one of the reasons why like food diversity is so important. So eating as many different foods as possible. And it's in large part because 
different foods have different nutrients. So you have a much lower chance of a nutrient shortfall if you're eating a lot of different foods, but also because we have certain gut bacteria that are like, they're just multitaskers. They, they like everything. They don't really care what you feed them, right? They'll, they'll thrive no matter what. But some of the most important species of bacteria that can live in our digestive tracts are really specific feeders. There's only very specific food sources that they like, that they will thrive on. And this is why fiber supplements don't improve the gut microbiome because you're like feeding one type of food that maybe a handful of bacteria like they're going to go gangbusters and all these way sensitive species are just going to, you know, not thrive in that environment. So the way that you make sure that all of these very specific species that are probably the ones that are unique for each of us are able to thrive is by mm -hmm. eating a diversity of plant foods so that you like basically guarantee that you're supplying the right food for maybe 500 or a thousand different strains of bacteria instead of just those like 40 or 50 multitaskers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know there's been a lot more talk lately of like, well, what is the optimal gut microbiome? And I think it is, you know, from what I've gathered from many experts, it's yes, it's what you're saying. It's it's individual to each person. And also like different microbes can actually adapt to different fuel sources. So there was like yeah. Dr. Lucy Mailing published a paper um, and it was titled, I think, like reframing nutritional microbiota studies. And it basically mentioned that um, and it, they compared animal-based diets to plant-based diets and actually found that it wasn't as clear-cut as like, oh, well, animal-based diets are just bad for you. It's like, well, microbiota seem to adapt to different types of fuels, whether it be like saturated fats or whether it be, you know, like omega-3 fats. Um, and so it's not as clear-cut like you're saying. Yeah. And actually what's really interesting about that particular branch of research is it it shows how quickly our gut microbiomes can shift when we make diet changes. So our, our gut microbiomes can almost completely change, not just what species are dominant, but also how they're metabolizing. So the exact food they're eating and what they're producing in as little as two to three days, which is great information. If you're trying to make healthy changes, you know that you can expect some results you know, in a short period of time, there's other changes that we see more over like six to eight weeks. Um, but it's also scary when you think about like how quickly falling off the rails can negatively impact our gut microbiomes. Right. Of course. Yeah. Now I want to transition over to uh, Nutrivore and, you know, I'll sort of preface it by saying that, you know, you've mentioned in several other interviews that a uh, bunch of diets and foods seem to have health benefits, some of them more than others. And, you know, there are certainly a lot of diets that don't have the purported health benefits that they claim to have. Yes. And in, in creating Nutrivore, you know, you looked for the commonalities between the ones that did show promise and you found them to be nutrient density. Is that correct? And, and sort of tell me about that process. Yeah. So I would say I have started resonating with the term Nutrivore more than any other dietary term, probably for the last seven or eight years. And the way I define Nutrivore is this very simple goal of just getting all of the nutrients that our bodies need from the foods that we eat. And it sounds really like logical and uh, like, it just makes sense, right? Like, well, of course, of course, that's what we're trying to do. But that concept is not actually integrated into very many dietary templates, right? The autoimmune protocol is kind of an exception and largely because of my influence. Um, and so what happens is like most people don't actually know what nutrients, different nutrients do in the body. They certainly don't know what foods contain what nutrients or how much of them we need. And what's happened with like diet cultures focus on thinness instead of health. And our paths to thinness for the last 50, 60 years of diet culture have been, this is the food you cut out, right? And depending on which diet you resonate with, you're going to cut out a, something different, right? You're going to cut out, first you're going to go low fat, and then you're going to go low carb, and then you might go paleo, and then you might go keto, and then you might go carnivore, you might go vegan. So the problem with diets being defined by what you eliminate and by weight loss being your only metric of, of health is that the body adapts. So no matter how you lose weight, your metabolism is going to slow down and your hunger home and ghrelin is going to increase over time. This is why maintaining weight loss is so hard. Like losing weight, almost every diet works to lose weight. 
maintaining weight loss really comes down to addressing habits. Uh, and so addressing big picture uh, structural issues with diet. So eating more whole foods, eating more vegetables, living an active lifestyle, managing stress, uh, getting enough sleep, right? Those are the things that help with maintaining weight loss. Those aren't typically integrated into a diet. And so what I've seen in diet culture is this, um, okay, I, I do this thing because I cut out these foods. Uh, it worked for a while. It stopped working. So what I'll do is I'll cut out more foods. And we're seeing this like rise in popularity of ever more restrictive eating patterns. And what's happening is it's driving a problem that pre-existed, right? The fact that most people, nearly 100% of us have dietary shortfalls, nutrients that we're not getting enough of from our diets. And then diet culture is making it worse because we're basically teaching people disordered eating. We're driving yo-yo dieting. And, um, and we're creating a system where like most people are confused what a healthy food even is. And so I have started building Nutrivore to fix that. So it's not a diet itself. It's a dietary philosophy. You can apply it atop of other dietary priorities. If you love paleo, you can be Nutrivore paleo. If you are vegetarian, you can be a Nutrivore vegetarian. And what it does is it, it, it does that very basic work that no other diet or government dietary guidelines have ever done, which is to teach you what foods have what nutrients, what foods are the most nutritionally valuable without doing the diet culture thing of this is a good food and this is a bad food. Because with Nutrivore, this very simplistic goal is about the whole diet. Did all of the foods you eat today add up to meet your nutritional needs? If one of those foods was a donut, it didn't contribute a ton of nutrition, but if you still met your nutritional needs, then can I say that donut was bad? No, I bet it was delicious. I bet it was awesome. So, so Nutrivore embraces like quality of life foods, right? Foods that nourish us in ways that's different than nutrition because we can completely sidestep these moral judgments on foods and just simply look at you know, how, what are the foods that I can focus on to make sure my nutritional needs are met? And then I can round that out with whatever I want, whatever fits my priorities, whatever dietary structure suits me or anti-diet or, you know, intuitive eating. It's sort of compatible with all of those things. It really bridges the world between diet and anti-diet. So for me, my journey has been research-based. It has been learning about the gut microbiome. Uh, it's been really getting into the nitty gritty of not just essential nutrients, but non-essential nutrients, actually, I find more fascinating. And then starting to see, you know, from within the health and wellness sphere, this problem of, you know, getting into more and more restrictive diet patterns and the holes, like health holes that people are digging by cutting out more and more foods and wanting to um, correct as much of that, um, sort of misinformation that's out there and provide people a simpler path to not just healthier food choices, but like a healthier relationship with food and a healthier relationship with our health. I think that's, um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head on the dieting culture aspect, because that's what I see a lot of is like track your calories, no matter how you're getting your calories down, just get them down. And yeah. oftentimes that's like, um, and you'll, and you'll see them, you, you'll see these people, um, sort of touting this app that helped them with their tracking. And they'll say, well, I could still eat bread on it as long as I'm under my calories, like refined bread, not saying that's the worst thing in the world, but it's definitely not the best thing in the world in terms yeah. of nutrient density. And so it is exacerbating this problem of nutrient insufficiency. Yeah. And I would say there's like a completely analogous tracking of carbohydrates and a completely analogous tracking of uh, fat grams um, or like low carb, low fat cycling, or right. Like there's, there's a lot of different paths to um, like an overly simplistic view of foods that does us a disservice, right? When we see foods as just good or bad, or we're simply counting macronutrients, we are missing the forest for the trees. Uh, food nourishes us by providing nutrients, which are mm -hmm. the raw materials that fuel the chemical reactions of life. And we, we don't have the raw materials that fuel all those chemical reactions. The chemical reactions are slower or they can't happen. And since every single 
biological system in our body relies on chemical reactions to do their jobs. If we don't supply those raw materials, those biological systems start to malfunction. And that's why nutrient deficiencies are linked with increased risk of every chronic illness. One of the things that I was very interested in when I was looking into your website and the, the database is that Nutrivore is not just focused on like vitamins and minerals, which are of course very important, but also phytonutrients. Could you explain briefly what are phytonutrients? Yeah, so phyto is derived from the Greek word phyton, which means plant. And obviously nutrient is a thing that uh, we, our bodies use uh, to fuel, again, the like chemistry of life. And so phytonutrients really like broadly refers to nutrients we get from plants. You could say fiber is a phytonutrient or the vi vitamin C is a phytonutrient, um, but really what we're talking about is um, a few broad classes of chemicals. So we're talking about polyphenols, carotenoids, triterpenes, plant organosulfur compounds, so glucosinolates and thiosulfonates, um, betalanes. Um, and so these are all large classes, right? There's like 12,000 different polyphenols. There's like 30,000 different triterpenes. And they're typically um, part of a plant's defense system. Um, so they, uh, and or they are part of a plant's flavor, aroma, um, taste. Um, many are wrapped into the cell walls. So they're part of the, like the fiber structure. And as a general rule, they're antioxidant. So, uh, you know, again, we're talking about 60, 70,000 different chemicals here of which a couple thousand have been studied. As a general rule, they're antioxidants, which are really important for us because we are a complex system. The uh, great thing uh, is that we get to have multiple cells <laughs> and have, you know, brains and, and be really awesome. Uh, because we're aerobic and organisms, we use oxygen to fuel all of those complex functions. So we have to use, like the reason why we're so complex is because we use oxygen. If we didn't use oxygen, we'd be single cell organisms. The price that we pay for that is the production of what are called oxygen radicals or reactive oxygen species oxidants. So oxygen damages our DNA over time. And that's what actually causes aging is all of the damage from oxygen. So antioxidants help to combat that. They're then can help improve the health of every cell. They can help reduce inflammation. Um, and so a lot of these phytonutrients, they're almost all antioxidant. And a lot of them have additional properties where they're really beneficial for our cardiovascular system. They lower LDL cholesterol or raise HDL cholesterol. A lot of them are helpful for maintaining insulin sensitivity. There's a bunch that have been shown to improve cognition. And so they all have like additional functions that are really important. So they're not labeled as essential because we haven't identified a disease of deficiency. You'd have to basically eat no plant foods at all in order to not get them Maybe with the rise of the carnivore diet, we'll start to be able to identify this. But at this point, you know, there's just, there's there's not a, here's the disease of malnutrition related to inadequate phytonutrients. So they're labeled as non-essential, but that doesn't mean they're not important. So the thing that we can say in studies is the more of phytonutrients you consume, the healthier you're going to be, the lower your risk of, of chronic disease. And it, it really is like, every single chronic disease, you can tie to a, a group of phytonutrients that are going to reduce your risk. Obviously, um, risk is not a light switch. It's not just like, uh, I have the risk and then I eat the phytonutrients and I turn off the risk. It's always right. a volume knob. So we're always looking to, to just like don't turn the volume down on our risk rather than turn it off. Um, but phytonutrients are like phenomenally important for supporting our overall health um, through generally antioxidant activity, but all, a lot of interactions with um, receptors with genes, like there's a, there's, they're very, very complex. And again, only a couple thousand of them have actually been thoroughly studied enough to, to completely understand. So you mentioned the carnivore diet, and I actually, this is something I wanted to bring up um, because there's been so much buzz in the media about, for example, Dr. Jordan Peterson and his daughter went on an all carnivore diet and you know, they 
they saw improvements in their depression and autoimmune disease. I believe that uh, like Michaela Peterson had arthritis or something and it cleared up virtually from like one week to the next. Um, and I was wondering what, where does that sort of play into this concept of autoimmune disease and, and nutrient deficiency? And does Nutrivore take into account some of these anti-nutrients as potentially being harmful in some cases, or is that not in the ranking system? So uh, I'm going to answer the last part of the question first. Sure. So the, the Nutrivore score does not penalize for anti-nutrients, and that's because they're so context dependent. So there's a lot of nutrient interactions, right? Like vitamin A deficiency, zinc deficiency, copper deficiency, low vitamin C can all exacerbate iron deficiency anemia, for example, right? So we have all of this uh, very complex uh, nutrients that can support each other, nutrients that competitively bind to receptors for absorption. Um, and the gut microbiome is a really important aspect here. So when you're talking about anti-nutrients, you're often talking about things like oxalates or phytates. Well, our gut bacteria liberate a huge amount of phytic acid from the mineral it's, it's bound to and process that phytic acid. Um, and same with oxalates. So a healthy gut microbiome is actually going to process those anti-nutrients for you. So there's not a really easy way to penalize a food for containing anti-nutrients because it's so dependent on the person's hormones, their gut health, their gut microbiomes, what other foods they're eating at the same time. And so it becomes like an impossibly complex system. So the Nutrifor score is a way of quantifying nutrients per calorie of a food, period. There's nothing is penalized. I'm not penalizing for saturated fat. I'm not penalizing for cholesterol. I'm not penalizing for added sugars. I'm not penalizing for sodium. Because again, those things being, and we can also have a conversation about how bad cholesterol and saturated fat are. Obviously moderate intake is not bad at all. And high fat intake is probably only bad for certain people with certain genetic predispositions. So again, we're talking about also the interaction of certain genes affecting whether or not something is bad. And it's about the whole diet, not about one specific food. So the Nutrivore score system sort of necessarily doesn't penalize a food for containing anything that isn't a nutrient. It's simply nutrients per calorie. My guys, switching to the first part of the question of um, what do I think about the carnivore? I think, you know, very broadly speaking, Nutrivore gives us a pathway to improve the our nutrient intake no matter what diet. So there are certain diets where getting all of the nutrients that our bodies need from the foods we eat are impossible because all food sources of certain nutrients are eliminated. So with carnivore, you would be eliminating fiber and phytonutrients. It would be very hard to get enough vitamin C unless you were eating like adrenal glands, right? There's yep. there's um, a, a whole collection of nutrients that you would just not be able to, to get enough of or any of. Um, but I could make the same argument for like a raw vegan is going to have certain nutrients um, zinc, preformed vitamin A, vitamin D. Well, I guess you can get some vitamin D for mushrooms. We'll take that one off the list. Um, but all vitamin of the non-proteogenic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but all the non-proteinogenic amino acids that uh, have been shown to be like really beneficial for metabolism, like creatine, carnitine, answerine, ornithine, taurine, those are not present in a vegan diet at all. So I can make the same argument there that there are all food sources of certain nutrients are eliminated. In both of those extreme cases, that doesn't mean you can't be intentional about the food choices within that dietary framework to increase your nutrient density. You, you can still apply Nutriver principles. You can still use the Nutriver score to identify better choices within your framework. But I would always encourage you to talk to a doctor about those nutrients that you're not getting any of and figure out if there's a supplement you can take I mean, my my concern with carnivore is the impact that is having long-term on the gut microbiome to have no fiber, no phytonutrients. And I can understand where, I mean, we see this with other uh, sort of low prebiotic diets, right? So low FODMAP can be this sort of a similar, gaps in SCD diets can be similar in that they have really amazing changes in the short term because when you stop providing any fermentable substrate to your gut bacteria. So there's, they have very little food. We do have some bacteria can live on protein. Um, 
But when you're dramatically cutting down the types of food they have, you suppress growth and you see all of the populations go down, including the problematic ones that are linked with disease. And so that's where you see that symptom resolution is like, yeah, you're, you're bringing down the populations of all of these problematic bacteria. Um, but over the long term, you're not supplying enough of those foods that those keystone species that are really important for a healthy gut uh, need to survive. And so it's it's sort of a similar problem with with all of these diets that eliminate food for our gut bacteria is that they have tremendous powerful power as a short-term intervention and huge limitations as a long-term lifestyle. Um, but that, all that being said, you know, I my my big recommendation is like have a look at Nutrivore, see how you can improve your nutrient intake, and then talk to your doctor about the limits of where you are as an individual in terms of your food choices and see if you can identify either a small list of foods to add back in that can help meet those nutrient shortfalls that feel good to you that are aligned with your priorities and or you know supplements that can help make up the difference. I think for everybody listening and watching, that's a very important mental framework for people to have is that something that may be beneficial in the short term may be detrimental in the long term. So that's super helpful. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, herbs and spices because they seem to have very high scores on Nutrivore. Mm -hmm. Is this, are we getting enough from just like, you know, using as garnishes or, you know, seasoning our foods, or is this like a supplementation route? What do you think there? So there's only a couple of studies that have actually tried to quantify health benefit from herbs and spices, but they show as little as about a teaspoon of dried spices, that'd be about a tablespoon of fresh spices per day actually reduces cardiovascular disease risk. So it doesn't take a lot to be able to measure a health improvement but like plant foods, so the reason why herbs and spices score so high is because they are incredibly concentrated sources of phytonutrients. Phytonutrients are the same compounds that are responsible for their distinctive tastes and aromas. And so um, so we can apply the same like dietary principles to herbs and spices. Diversity is really important because we're then we're getting a diversity of different phytonutrients and different benefits. Um, and it's kind of like the more the merrier. But I would say like aiming for a teaspoon per day of dried spices on your meals is a, is a great target. Like there's scientific evidence showing that that can improve cholesterol and reduce blood pressure. Um, but we don't have really good studies that are like dose responses. So in a lot with a lot of other foods, we have dose responses where we can say, that's why we can say like the more vegetables, the better, but fruit, there's a sweet spot around 300 grams per day. So dose responses are really, really helpful studies. We don't have those with herbs and spices, but we do have a few that have kind of looked at half a teaspoon a day versus a teaspoon versus none and shown benefit at a teaspoon per day. Gotcha. Okay. That's fascinating. I, I didn't know that just such little amounts of herbs and spices can have that massive of a benefit. They're that concentrated sources of these antioxidant phytonutrients. Um, so it's actually like really great testament to how powerful phytonutrients are if herbs and spices can deliver measurable benefits in such small quantities. Wow. Yeah. Um, are there any specific spices that you would say have like the greatest benefit? So um, that's a tough question. Um, there's certain ones that have been more studied. So, you know, turmeric has been super well studied. Ginger has yeah. been super well studied. Cinnamon has been super well studied. So cinnamon can act as a blood thinner, which is really interesting. Uh, turmeric obviously has anti-inflammatory and sort of pain relieving um, compounds in it. So does ginger has um, pain relieving compounds. So do cloves, um, rosemary, mint, uh, thyme, cilantro. Those all have really good anti-inflammatories in them that are linked with lower risk of, um, of cardiovascular disease. Garlic has um, really amazing impacts on um both cardiovascular disease risk and cancer risk. So I would say like, I mean, garlic is a great one. Garlic's fantastic. I would say garlic would be number one. Um, and from there, I would say, you know, there's there's not like a superstar that would say, you have to have this one. I would say, just be adventurous. Like there's so many amazing spice blends that, inc that incorporate five, 10, 15 different spices. Like that would be my go-to is how many different, 
herbs and spices can you put together in a way that tastes really good and flavorful that you're going to enjoy. So therefore it's a sustainable habit that's going to give you the most different benefits. So yeah, the, all of the common ones that you can think of, they've all been well-studied. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I think that's also, that's also huge um, because oftentimes this sort of orthorexic perspective of foods is, is all too prevalent. And I've experienced it myself that like you get to the point where you're like measuring out everything and you're like trying to get the perfect healthy food. If it's not organic or non-GMO, you can't touch it. You can't even look at it. Like, you yeah, know, this is good because Nutrivore is really taking into account the entire diet rather than just like one single food um, or nutrient. And, and also like in terms of the herbs and spices we're talking about, it's not just so we can obsessively get more phytonutrients in our diet. It's also because it tastes good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think one of my big challenges with Nutrivore um, which I will be tackling over the next few years is busting a lot of the myths that we have in health and wellness communities that have to do with food quality and have to do with like toxins in foods. I'm using air quotes again, um, that, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly fallen for it in the past, you know, a selective read of certain scientific studies can paint a picture of certain things being really bad for us. And it's not until you take a step back and look at the entire field that you start to see, actually, it doesn't look that way at all. And I think that drives um, not just like that food phobia that you're talking mm -hmm. about, but sort of classism in, in health and wellness as well. And I think, you know, my challenge with Nutrivore is to bust those myths so I can make healthier choices feel doable to as many people as possible um, feel affordable, right? Feel accessible. And, and part of that is, is, um, is really making sure that we're not afraid of, of foods. Um, and I think that's, I've got my work cut out for me there. There's a lot of pretty pervasive myths in the health and wellness community about certain foods. Yeah, there definitely is this, um, I didn't really think about it in this way or label it as you did until I saw some of your videos, but it is classist because if you say you can only eat the most pricey foods, organic, yeah. non-GMO, like, you know, farm farmer's market type stuff where they upcharge by like, I don't know, hundred percent, then <laughs> right. you're literally telling somebody that no matter what, like it's hopeless, they should just eat whatever junk yeah. food that they have. And that's, that's ridiculous. We have um, a litmus question on my team when we're building YouTuber resources, um, because making healthier choices really accessible is like top priority. I want to reach the person who doesn't even know that their diet doesn't have a lot of nutrients. And if I can get them to eat one serving of vegetables per day, like that is such a huge step, such a huge win. And it's going to give a measurable impact to that person's health. Yeah. So trying to reach that person means like ditching all of this diet dogma and baggage from all of these health myths. But our litmus question on our team, and this, this is probably, um, this is going to get a lot of comments is, do we care if someone has a diet Coke? Like that is, that is the question we ask. And it's taken me a lot of like learning and um, really examining my own like biases and how diet culture had affected my own approach to food. Like is diet Coke healthy? No, I'm never going to say that. But if you eat more vegetables and you're eating more seafood and you're eating a really nutrient focused diet and you love diet Coke and you have one diet Coke, I can't point to that causing harm. There's no scientific evidence that would say in that context, it's going to cause harm. Yeah. And so um, the the approach that I'm trying to make with Nutrivore isn't just um, getting away from that sort of dichotomous approach to eating where we have good foods and bad foods, but it's also trying to make healthy eating accessible because that way it's sustainable. I mean, we've got this huge problem with people going on and off diets and basically making their health worse with every cycle. And Nutrivore is here to just like put a stop in it and get rid of that like guilt blame cycle that is is driving so many health problems right now. Wow, I could keep talking about this for a while, but I want to honor your time. Uh, so where could people find out more about you and your work? So you can go to Nutrivore.com, brand new website, super spiffy and fancy. And my team and I are adding new articles almost every single day. So check back often because we're rapidly expanding the site. Um, from there, hit the join tab in the top corner. And then you can find me on all of the social medias. You can find my Patreon. Uh, you can uh, join my newsletter. 
um, lots of great ways to connect with me and get lots of amazing resources for free because I share information freely with everyone. Beautiful. And I'll have those linked in the show notes as well. Uh, before we go, I have three final questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, first, what are your top three most influential books you've read? Ooh, most influential books. Um, okay. This one is tangential, but, um, Emperor of All Maladies what is a book that it's about cancer is it's to me it's influential in how I write because it turns science into an amazing form of storytelling like it absolutely it earned a Pulitzer it absolutely you know earned it like it was amazing so influential in the sense of that's the book that I go back to when I am struggling with how to communicate a complex scientific topic so a book that was very influential in my life uh, sort of professionally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go with like complete fiction. Um, I would say uh, Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Uh, Outlander fans know it's not a, a romance and it should never be in the romance section. It's definitely a historical fiction. Um, but she has a PhD in biochemistry. So it's another really interesting transition from science to storyteller, um, but it's also a super compelling story that I can't say um, it enriched my life more than influenced it, if that makes sense. But I feel like probably never one, probably no one ever puts fiction on, on a list like this, no. like a book that influences you. But I think that fiction has such a, uh, such a role to play in how we navigate the world. And one of the themes in that book is uh, sort of a connection with nature. Um, and it's like three themes down. Um, and so there's a there's an aspect of that that I find really amazing. And then I would say probably one of the very many foraging books that I own is probably like the other really influential I think wild foods are fascinating and I um, I start every morning with a four mile hike in the woods with my dog and I am slowly one mushroom or other wild edible at a time, like learning my way through the forest of like what I can pick and eat in the mornings. Um, but I have like 15 different foraging books. Um, so uh, I'm not sure, maybe uh, like maybe Eating on the Wild Side by Joe okay. Robinson as like probably the first book that I I got that really like made a really compelling difference for wild foods. Yeah. That's one of my goals too, is to get more familiar with, with foraging. Um, what is your morning routine? So I, uh, I get up and I make my coffee. I let my dog out of the crate and have dog cuddles on the floor. I have breakfast and then uh, we go for again, a four mile hike in the woods um, it's unplugged time. So I'm not listening to a podcast or the news. I'm just like walking in my own head in nature. Um, and then a few days a week, I go straight from the woods to the gym and lift weights. And the other days I come home and go straight to work. So my morning routine is really, it's really like dog centered, but, um, I watch the sunrise every morning from some beautiful natural place. Um, and that, that is, the best way to start the day. And what are your three favorite foods? Three favorite foods. Mm -hmm. I like so much food. Um, okay. So I would say, uh, gosh, I would say like a good watermelon is probably way up there. Like good watermelon and good stone fruits would be on that list. Um, lamb, I think would be my, like my favorite meat, my favorite vegetables, lettuce. That's like the most boring, embarrassing answer. <laughs> Cause I also just like it plain. So I just want to like sit there and eat a whole head of lettuce. And I realize that makes me very, very weird, <laughs> but it is my favorite vegetable is like, okay. <laughs> just good, fresh lettuce. Yeah. So I was okay. Watermelon, lamb and lettuce. All perfect right. meal right there. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and watching to the podcast. You can find uh, all the resources that we mentioned in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me.
Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.